Well, good morning. Perhaps you've seen the meme on the internet. It's a photo of a baby at a bar, and there's a caption that reads, so this guy in a dress tried to drown me, and I swear my parents just stood there taking pictures. <laughs> Today we're talking about baptism. Baptism is honestly a bit of a strange thing, and so we can often have some fun with it. Uh, I was with my family yesterday at a medieval fair at my son Cohen's school, Archway Chandler, and, and there was a dunk tank there. And in my days before I was an Anglican, I often thought of baptism as a Christian one of those. <laughs> and yet baptism, it, it remains for us this beautiful and this sacred practice. More than just talking about baptism this morning, we will celebrate baptism with Liviana and Alexandra and Eliora. So what I decided to do this morning was to teach on our theology of baptism, particularly since I haven't done so in my time here at Living Faith. Now, when I say the word theology, many of you are already groaning inwardly. We tend to have this idea that theology is something done by quibbling academics at seminaries and at universities, or perhaps by oblivious pastors hold away in their offices. That's not the case. What I mean to say is that theology is what we believe about God and about the Scriptures. And all of us believe something about God and something about the Scriptures, which means that all of us are theologians, whether we want to think of ourselves in such terms or not. Now, God loves us, and He wants all of us to love Him and to understand Him with our hearts, with our souls, and with our minds. He wants us to know who He is. He wants us to know who we are, and He wants us to know what this world is around us and how we orient to each of those things. So the question is really not, are we theologians, but what theology do we believe? And is that theology faithful to God's Word? So today, we're going to talk about a biblical theology of baptism. Now, this is going to be a lot, but I provided a handout for you in the bulletin to help you follow along, and there are some fill-in-the-blanks there. I just encourage you to use that as a tool to keep your attention. So without further ado, we're going to just jump right in. As Anglicans, we refer to holy baptism as a sacrament, a sacrament. And so before we can really talk about holy baptism specifically, we have to figure out what we mean by sacrament. As Anglicans, the essential doctrines of our tradition are summarized in the 39 Articles of Religion, which date to 1571. Article 25 of 39 explains really succinctly, you may not feel like it if you read it, but compared to other doctrinal statements, it's quite succinct, it explains our position on the sacraments. Article 27 talks about baptism specifically. Now, I'm not going to read those articles this morning. I'm going to spare you, but I have on the back side of that handout provided the, the full form of those, and you can read them and refer to them as we move on this morning. Instead, what I want to do is simply unpack the theology that is in those articles. Essentially, this morning, there's four things that I want to say about the sacraments. Here's the first, and this is the first fill in the blank. There are two sacraments instituted by Christ. There are two sacraments instituted by Christ. 
The reason baptism is something that we do is because Christ was baptized and he commanded his followers to be baptized and to baptize others as well. He gave that commandment to his disciples uh, in the Great Commission. Likewise, we know that Jesus instituted the practice of the Lord's Supper on the night of Passover when he feasted with his disciples and he told them, partake of bread and wine in remembrance of me. So there are two sacraments, Holy Communion and Holy Baptism, each of them begun explicitly by Christ. The second thing I want to say about the sacraments is that they are a profession of faith. And that's the second blank. The sacraments are a profession of faith. When someone puts their faith in Christ, it means that they are called out of the world. They no longer belong to the world, and instead they're declaring allegiance to a new Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Both sacraments are ways of professing that faith in Christ. Actually, the Apostles' Creed, which dates as as early uh, as the third century, was used within the ceremony of baptism as just that. New converts were asked to recite the creed to show that they were declaring loyalty to Jesus and to no other Lord. In fact, as Anglicans, we still do this in the practice of holy baptism. Not just those being baptized, but the whole community of Christians will together profess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. So both sacraments, baptism and communion, are opportunities for us to either affirm for the first time or to reaffirm, which we should regularly do, reaffirm our faith in Christ. Now, it's true that in some Christian traditions, baptism is not considered a sacrament. It's often called an ordinance. Now, an ordinance, it's simply something that Jesus calls us to do in order to demonstrate our faith in him. Um, uh, That means that baptism is really only a profession of faith and nothing more. In college, I belonged to a Baptist church, and on one particular Sunday, one of the elders brought a man forward for baptism. And he said to us, the congregation, now I want you to know, baptism doesn't really mean anything spiritually. This is just a chance for this man to profess his faith and for us to be obedient to Christ. And while he said that, I was thinking to myself, how can it be that baptism doesn't mean anything spiritually? For him, and for Baptists, generally speaking, baptism is simply a profession of faith and only a profession of faith. For Anglicans, both sacraments are a profession of faith, but also much more than that. So what else are they? This is the third fill-in-the-blank. The sacraments are visible and effectual signs of God's grace to us. The sacraments are visible and effectual signs of God's grace to us. Let me explain what I mean. Oftentimes, when we're trying to explain what the sacraments are in total, we will say that they are outward and visible signs or symbols of an inward and spiritual grace. Outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. You can probably tell each sacrament is tied to a physical element. Water for baptism, bread and wine for Holy Communion. Each element, material element, is visible. We can see it, we could touch it, we could taste it or smell it if we wanted to. And through our senses, 
our ability to look at it and touch it and taste it, God helps us to see what is going on within us spiritually, which is not visible. Perhaps the biggest proof that God uses material things to convey his grace to us is the incarnation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, became a real human being. Why? In order to give God's real spiritual grace to us. The word sacrament is actually a Latin word which means holy promise. The sacraments are holy promises of the gospel to us. When we celebrate them, the promises of Christ's death and his resurrection are made known to us through physical elements. The final thing about the sacraments is that the sacraments foster our faith. They foster our faith. Sacraments, they don't just point to the grace that was already given to us in Christ through his death and resurrection. They are also a means of present and future grace. And there are two reasons for this. The first reason is that the sacrament, in the sacraments, God is present with us in a real and spiritual way. They do mean something spiritually because God is there. And second of all, because God is there through his presence with us, God deepens our faith in him. So what this means is that when we partake of the sacraments, God is there and God does something in us. Article 25 says that God uses the sacraments to quicken, to strengthen, and to confirm our faith in him. And because of all these things, holy baptism and holy communion, they mean a great deal spiritually. They are not strange rituals to be explained away, but they are clear and beautiful pictures of the gospel. And they have powerful effect upon our lives. And therefore, we take joy in celebrating them as often as we have the chance. So now that we've talked about what the sacraments are, let's talk specifically about what baptism is. And as a sacrament, baptism is a sign and symbol of God's grace and a promise of the gospel to us. So what particularly does holy baptism symbolize? And what of the gospel does it promise to us? Well, there are five main symbols held within this sacrament, and I want to touch on each of them really briefly. The first symbol, gospel symbol, as I'll call them, is spiritual cleansing. Spiritual cleansing. It is not a coincidence that the material element used in baptism is water. We use water to do what? to wash our bodies. So baptism, in baptism, God uses water to symbolize cleansing, spiritual cleansing. Now you may not know this, but baptism did not start with Christianity. Our idea of baptism, it came from Judaism, from the Jewish practice of ritual cleansing which God commanded in the Torah. Before Jews were allowed to worship God, they had to cleanse themselves spiritually by washing in what was called a mikvah. And often Jews did this by immersing themselves or by pouring water over their heads. And when they had finished, they were declared ready to worship God. So in the Gospels, when we see John the Baptist baptizing people, 
the Jews who were walking by and seeing what he was doing, they weren't confused. They knew what he was doing. John was inviting them to become ritually clean in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now, as Christians, our practice is very similar. Water is used on our bodies as a symbol of washing away our sins, like a spiritual bath. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, after the Apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Ananias told him, Paul, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What this means is that, unlike Jews, we only need to be baptized once because Christ has cleansed us spiritually once for all. The second gospel symbol contained within this sacrament is new birth. New birth. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus famously talks at night to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus, we know, takes him literally thinking Jesus is somehow wanting him to climb back into his mother's womb and to be born again. But, of course, we know Jesus is talking about something different. Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about a spiritual new birth. And he's talking about the spiritual new birth which baptism points to or symbolizes. Every single one of us, without exception... We're born into this world through the waters of our mother's womb. I won't go into much more detail about that. When Christ saves us, though, each of us are born through new water, and that is the water of baptism. The third gospel symbol within the sacrament of baptism is participation in the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Participation in the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, verses 3 to 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says that when we are baptized, we actually participate spiritually in what Jesus did. Oftentimes, when we baptize someone, we will pour water over their head. This is consistent with the practice of Judaism and the early church. However, you might not know this, but immersion is actually the preferred mode of baptism for Anglicans. And the reason is that is not simply because we're dogmatic, but because immersion holds the symbolism. When someone is put under the water, it's a more powerful symbol of their burial. And when someone is brought out of the water, it's a more powerful symbol of their resurrection. Now, I'm not going to spend really any more time talking about the mode of baptism today, and that's on purpose, because it actually doesn't matter all that much, given the diversity of practice within Judaism and the early church. The Didache or the teaching of the Twelve, which was written around 96 AD, it gives this wonderful statement on whether we're supposed to immerse or to sprinkle. And I provided that uh, in, in writing on the back of your handout. And basically it says this, if you can immerse, then immerse. But if you can't, 
pour water over the head three times. The main thing is that we understand that baptism illustrates death to our old way of life and resurrection to walk in a new life. The fourth gospel symbol within the sacrament is becoming a part of God's people. Becoming a part of God's people. We often will call baptism the rite of initiation. Now, if you're thinking about fraternities and sororities, get that out of your head. We're talking about something sacred and holy here. The rite of initiation. What that means is it's, it's how we join the people of God. One of the ways we often talk about this is as entrance into the church or becoming a member of Christ's body. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, For just as the human body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, all of us were baptized into one body, which is Christ Jesus. Other times, we will talk about becoming a part of the, fa- of the people of God as being adopted into the family of God. Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son Jesus to redeem those who were under the law in order that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. These are pictures of entering God's people. Baptism is the mark of that. It's a bit like a cattle brand showing whose we belong to. Baptism is the sign of belonging to God's people. The final gospel symbol within the sacrament is the seal of the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal is something that authenticates. A seal authenticates. Think about a king. When a king puts his seal or his stamp on a letter or an envelope, what's it there for? It's there to confirm that what he wrote is true and authentic. It's the real deal. Likewise, the New Testament teaches that baptism, in baptism, God seals a person with his Holy Spirit, testifying that the salvation he has given is true and authentic. It's the real deal. So baptism is not just a sign or a symbol of grace. It's actually a seal or a stamp of God's grace. And in all of these ways, the sacrament of baptism preaches the gospel. It preaches the gospel really without even a word. It's a witness not just to those who are baptized, but to all who are there to see it. Which brings us to this question. Who then should be baptized? Who should be baptized? In Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached to the crowd who had gathered, trying to figure out why these disciples seemed to be so drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning. And so Peter started to preach to them, really, the whole story of redemption, including how the Jews had put Jesus to death, but how God had raised him from the dead and promised forgiveness of sins to all who believe it. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39, it says this, When the people heard what Peter said, they were cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do then? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Baptism is the the logical and the right response to repentance and faith. It's the next step. So who should be baptized? Everyone who repents and puts their faith in Christ. Now, we need to say that just because someone is baptized does not mean that they are saved. We know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And what that means is that the sacraments can't and won't do anything for us if we don't believe in Christ with our hearts and trust Him with our lives. And Article 25 says this explicitly. So as Anglicans, who do we baptize? Anyone who repents of sin and puts their faith in Christ for salvation. That's who we baptize. And we also baptize the children of believing and faithful parents who are called by God to raise their children in that same faith. Which brings us to this question. Why do we baptize infants? Why do we do it? Not all Christian traditions baptize infants. For example, Baptists and other Baptistic churches, especially non-denominational churches, they, they tend to believe that adult believers only should be baptized, specifically by immersion. So why do we baptize infants? Well, as I often do in my sermons, I tend to leave myself very little time to talk about complex and sometimes contentious subjects. And so the first thing I would like to do is to recommend to you a really brief, really brief and wonderful book. It's by a guy named Scott McKnight, who is a theologian. It's called It Takes a Church to Baptize. Now, Scott McKnight uh, was a Baptist and is now an Anglican, and he does this really wonderful job of explaining how he came to believe that infant baptism is the most faithful and compelling practice for baptism. But what I want to do now is just to take a few minutes to help you understand why it's something that I have come to believe as a former Baptist. The first reason is this, the overarching theology of Scripture, the whole theology within the Bible. Now, I've said this before, and I will say it often. The Bible is the story of God's redemption. That's what it is, first and foremost. And in that story are a couple of really important themes. One of the themes is God's initiative. God's initiative. Everything good that happens, everything, comes from God. God initiates it. God created. God redeemed. God will recreate. It's all God's initiative. Baptism is ultimately about God's initiative because it's about the gospel, which is God's initiative. So while it's true that faith is required for baptism, what's not true is that we somehow, by our faith, make ourselves worthy of baptism. God is the one who puts faith in our hearts to begin with. Therefore, baptism is really not about us taking the initiative to do something, showing our faith in God, but rather it's about God taking the initiative to do something in us. 
If anyone is active in baptism, it's not us. We're passive. God is active. God is doing something in us. That same initiative of God, we believe, applies to children. A second important theme is covenant. Covenants are these promises which God makes with people based upon his faithfulness and his unconditional love. And the Old Testament is full of covenants. The most important one is the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, of course, Christ establishes the New Covenant. What we see across the board in the scriptures is that covenants do not just apply to adults, but to children as well. In my mind, the single most important text on baptism in the scriptures is Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 13, because it says that baptism explicitly is the sign of the new covenant. This is what it says. In Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, or a spiritual circumcision, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him in baptism, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. In the Old Covenant, as you probably know, all male infants were circumcised. And they, and all children, male and female, were nurtured into the faith by their parents, by their friends, and by their spiritual teachers. The New Testament really makes no break with this understanding of covenant. Our children are still a part of the covenant family of God, and therefore they are signed and sealed with the promises of God in the gospel as we, as a community, nurture them into that faith. And this is the reason why there are at least four instances in the New Testament where the entire household was baptized, from adults down to children, usually on the basis of the faith of the headhold, head of the household, the headhold. Wow, <laughs> talking about jujitsu, Father Bob. <laughs> headhold. You can quote me on that. The second reason that I've really come to believe infant baptism is the most compelling and faithful to the scriptures is really the tradition of the church. The tradition of the church. Infant baptism was the universal practice of the early church from North, um, North Africa to Syria to Southern Europe with only a few exceptions. In the late first century and early second century, Polycarp and Justin Martyr, they both indicate that infant baptism was the practice of the church by the end of the apostolic era. At the beginning of the third century, Origen wrote in his commentary on Romans, the church received from the apostles the tradition of baptizing children. Later in that same century, the third century, Hippolytus of Rome said infant baptism was the unquestioned rule received from the apostles. I could go on and on, but I won't labor the point. Infant baptism was the practice of the church all the way up until the Reformation. And Luther, Calvin, and Cranmer all continued that practice as good and right. It was the rise of the Anabaptist movement on the continent of Europe, which first called infant baptism unbiblical. Throughout the vast majority of the church, and to this day, the majority of Christians, vastly so, have belonged to churches which practiced 
infant baptism, and they themselves were likely baptized as infants. Most of the mothers and fathers of our faith belong to those kind of churches. And so if we dismiss it, what we do is we dismiss most of the church. I'm not sure any of us want to do that. Now, there's more that I could say, but I won't. Instead, I really want to take the chance again to recommend this book to you, It Takes a Church to Baptize. What I want to do in conclusion, after spraying you with a big baptismal fire hose, (laughs) is to end with an invitation. And the invitation is this, quite simply, be baptized. Be baptized. Some of you here may not be baptized. Now, for some of you, that may be because you're not repenting and putting your faith in Christ. And if that's the case, then as it's as it should be. You shouldn't be baptized yet. What I would pray and what I would hope is that you would turn to Christ, put your faith in him, and be baptized. Some of you here, though, claim to be Christians and claim to follow Christ, and yet you have not taken Christ up on his command to be baptized. It's never too late to be obedient. It is never too late to experience the good that God wants to do in your soul. And so if that's you, I just want to encourage you, come talk to me. Be baptized. The rest of you are baptized believers. And still my invitation to you is the same. Be baptized. Martin Luther would not say, I was baptized, but I am baptized. Baptism is not so much a historical event that happened at some point in our lives. It is a way of being. It's an identity. If you are baptized, you are called to be baptized. You are called to live the baptized life of worship, of righteousness, of faith, of love, of humility and mercy. You are loved by God. And God has washed you with pure water that you might be cleansed from all of your sins. And now you are marked as His own. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So when the world scoffs at your faith, be baptized. When you are discouraged, be baptized. When you are tempted, be baptized. When you're nearing the end of your life or just starting out, be baptized. You are baptized. May it be so. Amen. Amen.